0: What are you truly good at? What is your secret sauce that you can add to whatever your industry is, whatever your work is? Sticking to your zone of genius is something that comes natural to you and it's something that you can do with ease and can enhance whatever area of your life. When I started to embrace zone of genius is when I realized that it was actually okay for me to say I don't like planning. And I was like, I'm not a great planner. It's not my areas of expertise. It's not where I'm best served. When it comes to strategy and design, 100%, that would be my zone of genius. Welcome to Production Value Matters, the business event podcast,
1: brought to you by Burn Production Services. Here, we explore the different ways business events can bring value to your organization, the latest technological advances in the event space, as well as providing you with actionable strategies to make a business event a success let's create an exceptional
0: event experience.
1: Welcome to another episode of Production Value Matters, the business event podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by the incredible Mahogany Jones. Mahogany is the multi-award winning corporate event specialist. So much so that her business of almost 20 years is quite simply called the event specialist. She's the first Canadian event professional to be a certified digital event strategist, and her wealth of experience has seen her become an international household name in the industry. The events industry continues to grow, and I can't wait to talk to her about all of her insights. Welcome, Mahogany. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So talk to us through your career, from starting your own business all the way to being Once again, nominated for one of the most influential event professionals by Eventex this year.
0: I feel like I've been accidentally put into the event space, but it's actually the only job. I shouldn't say the only job. We've had a couple other jobs in between, but it was the first job I've ever held and continued to hold. From volunteering in the foundation office at the local hospital to then getting hired to be a part of the... Fundraiser that became the summer job. And then it's what paid for school. I actually used to feel like events was just a cool way to pay for school. And I was going to become this amazing pediatric oncologist and cure the babies of cancer. And then realized, even in university, I have a science degree, my love still stayed in events and that I could still impact the world, but just in a different way. So it kind of evolved to become what I thought was a cool way to pay for school, to a career, to then realizing my schooling didn't match the career I wanted, which meant I couldn't get the job as an event planner, even though I had more experience than the average university grad did. So I did what every young professional does, they open a business. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 2004, Event Specialist was born because it's a job that I wanted, so I created it.
1: Yeah. Awesome. And so what is it that you love most about working in the events industry?
0: I'll have to actually say it's more of the design and strategy side. Even from my earlier dates, I feel like, I know you and I have spoken about this and I say it all the time, I actually didn't understand the AV world, but that is really the world that I would have probably sat in. So I feel like I was like that unicorn event planner because my goal was to always find how we could make technology work, how we could have it sound better, look better. For me, I had more interest in making sure that lighting was used versus flowers on a table, for example. So my favorite part, I guess, of the event industry is really bringing to life like a vision and bringing the creative side. And then of course, technology too.
1: So what's most important to you about pulling off that perfect event? As you mentioned, you like the lighting over the flowers, but can you personify what that most important element is?
0: I have to say the most important element to me is the content. I know we preach content all of the time, but I feel like an event that can't be remembered for anything lacks a value. I mean, true story, it lacks a value proposition, but without true content... And that content can be something as simple as the networking that happens. That content can be what we're delivering, but what you're expecting to get out of the event.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so have you seen the industry evolve over time? Its emphasis on content, for instance?
0: Absolutely. I feel like I've been very fortunate early on in my career to work in professional development and also to work in medical education. And when I started more looking at content and understanding what it takes to put together an event. I took for granted, and I will say this, that I actually assumed that all events were created this way. In medical education, you have to start with core values and goals and objectives. If not, the education can't be created. Fundamental principles when it comes to an event, like without goals and objectives, it really shouldn't be created. But yet we do see that all of the time. So for me, the medical field always allowed me to build off of goals and objectives and produce and plan content to match that. I feel like over the last, we'll say five to seven years, I don't want to say COVID did it because I feel like that's overrated. But we did start to see a transition to the focus of content. I mean, how many times did you hear I want to say it was probably like the 2019, 2018 buzzword was content is king. Like that became everybody's core focus of everything. And then we also saw the rise of the webinar. We saw the rise of content. We saw the rise of Netflix. And with all of these different trends, it forced us to relook and revisit how we were doing things in the event space. We were allowed to start borrowing from broadcasts. We started to borrow from the Netflix playbook. We started to borrow from all of these different industries to remind us that content is king. I mean, learning management principles and learning principles from an adult perspective to children have always been applied to our industries. just a matter of whether or not we learned it and applied it. So working in higher education, for example, things like that.
1: So then that's a good segue into thinking about what fundamentals haven't really changed and remain the same. You mentioned, and one of the things that just sparked in me was that idea of the event industry borrowing from other industries and sort of following that, those developments. And so I kind of think that that is something that has always been constant, that no matter what we are keeping a pulse on, and I hate to say it this way, but what's new and what's cool, do you think that that's something that has fundamentally remained the same?
0: I will say it has. I feel like it's been definitely heightened over the last few years. Thinking of industries that lost work, I mean, I know for me, a true CAD designer was always somebody that I would steal for trade shows. And understanding event designers, I feel like we're almost like the unsung heroes—the event marketers who always said they were never in the event industry, which I find very funny. But they do exactly what we do, just a different industry or a different formality, I guess. But We really need to look at how we can borrow. COVID allowed us to steal, if I'm perfectly honest, some of the best producers. I mean, we went from an analog to a digital format very fast, but not everybody knew how to work the tools or to produce. It's very easy to, I shouldn't say easy, but it's different to look at a switcher or to look at a room space or to do all of these things instead of applying kind of different principles for virtual. But those who work in broadcast, I mean, we've actually hired team members who are like, oh, I've never worked in the event industry. I don't know if I could really support your team. And my answer is, I've read your resume and you've been producing television, which means you can produce content. You can produce an event. You have a different eye for making sure that all the pieces fall into place. You have a different eye for making sure that that main theme of the conference and content is weaved throughout the look, the design, and the delivery. So I feel like there's something to be said for these industries we're borrowing from.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly COVID, you know, a lot of changes in the industry. And I think you nailed it on the head with the idea of shifting into television production and using different skill sets that would not be, I think the word I'm using, trying to think of is not typical. So interesting perspective on that since COVID, we've seen a lot of a resurgence in the industry. Some people say it's booming, some people don't. And I'd love to hear your take on it. But you actually posted something on LinkedIn recently that you thought that the event industry would grow to the number is 1,552 billion by 2028. What do you think is driving that growth right now? Is it a return to live? Or is it more, as you said, getting into the more digital, virtual events, TV, broadcast content creation?
0: If I'm honest, I feel like it's more of an economic shift, an understanding of where the events industry actually impacts global dollars and global spend. I feel like we are often the off the side of your desk area, but yet events as a whole is part of the hospitality and tourism industry. It is what drives revenue to cities. It's what brings revenue to different parts of the world and to companies. Like it's more than just the wine and cheese that you're hosting, or it's more than the conference. It's an industry that impacts the economy. So I feel like that is what's going to help drive. We're seeing more and more advocacy agencies who are starting to put the groundwork in place to help our industry grow. We're starting to see more positive conversations at the right tables that are impacting I mean if we're looking at tourism dollars that are now starting to go to event management companies we're looking at tourism dollars that are helping to bring the larger scale events the what we would call like the road shows or the different city-wides and things like that it's impact it's money
1: so it's interesting that you point out that cuz the way that I have always seen events and I don't know if you agree with that is that it needs to always concentrate on particular objectives for business. Like we're a business events company first and foremost. And so how do you see events meaning different things for different audiences? Like you mentioned the tourism and travel industry and the economic impact on a city, but. How are you seeing that difference when it comes to corporate and business clients and how they're perceiving events as part of their overall cultural, marketing, sales driven revenue generators?
0: I guess it depends a little bit on the industries that they sit in. I mean, we're very privileged that we have the opportunity to work with different associations as well as corporate clients. For our corporate clients, their events tend to be user conferences sales meetings, and things like that. But they also understand that the budget that they're spending, that 750 to $1.2 million budget is going to a city. So they are selective in how they choose the city. They choose cities that they have a larger presence so that they can impact the area, help their own companies, members grow, and they look at the financial impact that way. When it comes to associations, I feel like they're also kind of looking at it. It might just be a little differently, but they do look at how they can infuse cash into their other areas of membership and business. So if we look at a lot of national associations who will divide their conferences between East Coast, West Coast. Northeast, and I say this only because we're doing also European versus Canadian versus U.S., like those types of things are starting to spread the money throughout the markets that they are in to help infuse cash again into those areas and then also back to themselves. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're fueling our companies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So do you see a fundamental sort of difference between b to b events. And I'm going to group associations with that as well, because they tend to be attached to business objectives and B2C events or public events.
0: I feel like because we don't produce in that space, but I've always been obsessed with, we'll call them the, well, I mean, I'm a sports fanatic, so it makes it a little bit easier. But I feel like if I look at the Olympics, or if I look at world athletics, or if I look at World Cup and FIFA, I feel like those kinds of events have same impacts. Like we're starting to see things that are evolving. We're also starting to see the pullback of money that we're not seeing enough impact locally. We're also seeing a lot of sustainability. I totally, I'm going to go off on a tangent now, but totally seeing like the sustainability trends that everyone is speaking about sustainability and travel and carbon footprint, but we're not actually talking about buying local. We're not talking about keeping currency local, keeping the economy local. We're also not talking about how we can infuse more cash into that. So I feel like some of these larger events shine a lot of light on a local economy and how you can infuse cash and how different markets can impact differently. So business to business or business to consumer, but impact is still there and measurable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to something you just mentioned about, and I'm going to personify this or rephrase this a little bit but it sounds like the events industry is kind of growing up in the minds of those who, I think you said something about it's a off the side of your desk moment or perception. And do you think that we're getting invited to the table a little bit more in the same way that,
0: say, digital marketing efforts would be as a channel? I actually don't think we're there yet. I feel like I preach it a lot that... And I will say this as we, but we as planners, I feel like sold ourselves as the help. I know I get a lot of flack for saying that, but we've sold ourselves as the help. We've not sold ourselves as the C-suite. We have not sold ourselves as the strategic partners who need to be at the table. I mean, how many times has a C-suite overridden a decision that is going to impact salaries, budgets of a conference? I mean, how many association planners, their salaries are 100% tied to the revenue of that conference? but yet we're not seeing that as the economic driver of that association that's keeping it afloat. Like if we look at all of those types of things, I don't feel like we truly have a seat at the table. I have actually tested this theory quite a bit in how I approached. I know when I started my company, I wasn't getting answers because I was, or from venues, suppliers and all of the things because they didn't feel that I had a title. So I kept playing with titles to see if that would help me get to a better strategic spot at the table, whether that be impacting the budget, whether that be, I mean, I was fortunate to do pharma events early on in my career as well. So with that, we're seen as a consultant. In the later years, not many people had event technology experience. And I was very proud to toot the horn of event technologists. But then I sold myself as a consultant, which also brought higher rates. But if I sold myself as director of events or event coordinator or event planner, I mean, I tried all titles. I didn't have the same view. The same comes into play if we look at how we're even quoting and looking at things. If we look at, for example, how many of our clients perceive a budget or perceive the services that they're hiring, event producers and event planners, event managers were often grouped under the admin category. I don't want to discredit any admins because they are who keep us going in there and it's very important, but they're grouped in that category, which means they're very comfortable to say, we should be able to afford this at a lower rate, not realizing that the amount of hours and manpower it takes from the manager's side is really what's going to keep that event running. But they don't flinch when we look at, I mean, I guess we're flinching now because of the cost of AV and seeing all those rising costs, but it's a different discussion. It's a different discussion because that partner is going to be what brings it together, not realizing that the event manager or the producer is really a real important part of that conversation. But the value that you get from your event, the profit that can come from your event, the jobs that can be created, the impact that can happen, a lot of that comes from your event, your event manager, your event strategist, all these different titles that we seem to put on <laughs> to make sure that we can have our seats at the table. but It's a harder conversation to have. No, I don't think we're there yet. Do I feel like we're starting to get there? Yes. Do I feel like we need to borrow a page from the playbook from event marketers who don't feel like they're in the event management space? 100%.
1: Yeah, so that's a good sort of next step on that. And there's a bit of a, I'm going to call it a groundswell in the industry. I think people experiencing a devaluation that has happened across the industry over the many years, and we're certainly a vocal advocate of this, that, you know, know your worth. I think, I'm going to forget the Ignite magazine has their Worth It initiative, which was sparked last year. And so, practically speaking, how do you think that event professionals should be positioning themselves, whether they're business owners or not, to get that seat at the table? Like, what's the next step of work that needs to be done, do you think?
0: Part of me is always in tooting the horn of data. Like I know I feel like we can back ourselves with a lot of data to make it easier to sell to a C-suite. But the same as you have to lobby for your own worth and your own salaries and your own everything, I feel like it's time for us to come together. I do feel like there is place in our industry for associations to come together or something. We've talked about a union for a lot of times and for a long time, I guess, in the event space. Something that will help give us voice. But We also have to be owners of these conversations as being a member of CANSPEP, for example, the Canadian Society of Event Professionals. That conversation comes up a lot in that we ourselves devalue so that we can compete with each other. So we go into survival mode, and survival mode is not what's going to help the industry progress, but it is going to help protect the planners who need to go into survival mode. It is what it is. But I feel like we need to be a little bit more vocal as an industry. More than just individuals, maybe it comes down from, actually, I say that I do feel like we are starting to see it from an association standpoint. We're standing behind business meetings. We're seeing more numbers come out and we're speaking more to the terms of the impact of the event versus just hosting an event. Slowly but surely.
1: (laughs) You know, it's interesting, we were talking about COVID earlier and when all the events went away, I think that that sort of, exposed a gaping wound, that's a terrible metaphor, but you know what I mean, that our client organizations found, like that assumption that it is like, it's an event, you're hosting this, you're an admin, this is not really affecting my bottom line. Like There was an expression that I used to hear from C-suite guys that, oh, we do events pretty much because it's an obligation, right? Like we go to that trade show because everybody goes to that trade show and puts up a booth and we sort of have to participate. Right. And so when the pandemic came along and they couldn't do it, they were like, oh, we don't have to spend that money. Great. Fantastic. But then six months later, they were like, oh, wow, our sales just went down. Why is that? Oh, it's because we don't do that anymore. And then they saw that, like, no, this is an important channel in our marketing strategy, in our cultural and values building within the company itself. This is how important it is. and so. I think that that's sort of pushing us in the industry back, like we're almost going to ride a little wave to get at to the table with the digital marketers and the marketing agency world and whatever that might be, and sort of bring ourselves up to that standard. But I do think, and I don't know if you agree with me, that we still have to do some paddling to get up to that table and fight against some Elements of this industry that might be saying, no, 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 change is bad. Let's come back. And so I don't know if you agree with that opinion, but uh, that's so. So in that line of thinking about how we perhaps educate the industry and educate professionals and sort of help uplift, about five years ago, you started the Eventpreneur
0: Success Lab. Can you tell me a little bit about what your motivations for starting that? If I'm honest, the motivation was pretty selfish from the Eventpreneur Club perspective. I happened to love marketing and social media and all of those things and happened to be pretty good at branding myself and putting a lot of content out there to build my own brand and was getting asked a lot about well how are you running your company how are you starting this how are you doing that and I went looking I was like well maybe there's got to be something else like there has to be something out there that's going to bring this community together to help us grow and While I did find a couple of associations, I didn't necessarily find a global community that could help us grow together. So the Eventpreneur Club was built off of the idea that we could come together with collective knowledge and help each other grow profitable business. When I originally started the Eventpreneur Club, it was actually only for business owners and only owners of event industry businesses who were making a minimum of $250,000 a year. And I had put the dollars in there so that we could show that this industry could bring everybody over a million and we could sit in this space and help each other grow businesses. Pandemic hit. I became ghost planner for a lot of companies who had never done a virtual event. And then a lot of people laid off and all of the things. And then the Eventpreneur Club became a community where we could all come together, freelancers included, to support each other. But yes, it was purely selfish at first. It was, I couldn't find what I wanted.
1: <laughs> I think that's the spark of entrepreneurship in any industry, right? You go out and you say, the thing that I want to do is not here. Well, I guess I have to go, which, you know, kudos to you. So what do you find is like sort of the main questions that come to you? And how do you try to answer them in that entrepreneur club? So as you said, when you went to the world and said, where do I find the answers for this? You built it. So when people are coming into the club, what kind of answers are they seeking? And how are you trying to handle that?
0: One of the biggest questions we were getting was around sales. A lot of it was sales and a lot of it was marketing. So the main focus of the club was to build, market, grow a profitable business, but profit on your own terms, because profit doesn't always include doesn't always have to be that million dollar dream or whatever, that number that we're looking for. So based on those premises, but the questions that we actually got, a lot of it was, we don't need to learn how to design a better event. We don't need to do all of these things. So the questions that were coming was how do I differentiate myself? The full year, first year of Eventpreneur Club, I taught how to differentiate yourself in a sea of planners. Like that became sort of one of the core Teachings that I kept giving because we were so tied to the company we worked for or the organization we worked for. And then when COVID hit, unfortunately, a lot of our fellow planners who owned their own companies had a business of one client. And once that one client was gone, all of a sudden it was, well, what do we do? I can honestly say at event specialists, I'm very privileged and I understand that, and I know I'm very blessed. We actually don't market the company. Myself, like whatever I'm posting on social and things like that is our marketing channel. But when we had everyone start coming to the club, they're like, we no longer have business. We don't actually have an email marketing tool. And every once in a while, I'm like, you don't have a CRM? That was also my favorite question. I'm like, let's go to the Rolodex. Like, what's in your CRM? And they're like, what is CRM? But we had been in business for so long On referrals, I mean, a lot of us who are our age and older, like our businesses are built on referrals. That's a lot of hospitality. We didn't know how to market to other people. We didn't know how to enter a different industry. We actually didn't even know how to reach out to the people we had been working with because we never had to. We never had to ask for that business. So that was a lot of the work that we did earlier in the pandemic. The last couple of years, I feel like we've just been riding the wave and it's been more of who can help who. And it's become a collaboration effort. So with the lack of availability, I feel like we're always on this hiring roller coaster. So that has been the last year and a half-ish of questions. How do we find talent? How do we find people? How do we train?
1: Interesting. Certainly, we experienced the same thing over the pandemic and then post after that. You know, too many people were sitting there going, we didn't know, as you said, how to sell, how to market. I laughed out loud when you said, what's a CRM? I can remember five, 10 years ago, just some basic business practices that we would be working with clients or other partners and saying, why don't you have this very basic thing in your business structure? And they'd be like, well, we've just never needed it. So shrug, off you go. So it's interesting that so many people in this industry are experiencing that sort of wake up call that they needed to sort of mature their businesses. And I think that's great. So one of the things that you mentioned is the zone of genius. To those who aren't familiar with that concept, can you just give me a little overview
0: of what that is? Absolutely. Zone of genius, I feel like it's come from quite a few different books. Start with why was kind of like my first view into that side note. A lot of entrepreneurs, even in our event space, read a lot of event books, but they didn't read business books, which also confused me, but still the option. So zone of genius for me, if I'm honest, also really came to a head when it comes down to how I view the production of an event. If I look at my area or zone of genius, it's really sticking to your lane. What are you truly good at? What is your secret sauce that you can add to whatever your industry is, whatever your work is? Sticking to your zone of genius is something that comes natural to you. And it's something that you can do with ease and can enhance whatever area of your life. When I look at zone of genius in the event space, I felt like we often tried to force everyone into the one understanding or one bucket. When I started to embrace zone of genius is when I realized that it was actually okay for me to say I don't like planning. because I was like, I'm not a great planner. It's not my areas of expertise. It's not where I'm best served. When it comes to strategy and design, 100%, that would be my zone of genius. But understanding and leaning into zone of genius will allow you to see kind of like the holes that exist, but also how to maximize something so that you can bring everyone with their own zone of genius to make something exceptional. If I look at an event as a whole, I mean, I always said like, I don't understand why we don't ask our AV partners what they're working on. I don't understand why we don't ask our venue, what is the best setup for this venue? We often come in with, well, this is what I need. This is how many breakouts. This is the general session room without understanding that everybody brings their own zone of genius. Someone might be a a true expert in show flow management or attendee flow management, but if we're not asking the questions to understand everyone's area of expertise and zone of genius, then we're kind of missing out.
1: Yeah, it goes into that sort of business fundamental of what's your differentiator and great way of personifying it. And you know, we all have differentiators in this industry, as you mentioned, the AV company, the planning team, the strategic designer, or whatever it might be. So with these different skills that need to be involved in putting on an event, how do you recommend people achieve sort of that collaborative effort between those teams?
0: Understanding that there is no one source of failure in an event. And I will say this to my fellow planners, forcing the planners to realize that they are also not the sole source. A failure to an event. Collaboration is the key to success in anything. And one person can't do what a team can do. So we have to be in that mindset. But I feel like we also have to be and I know it's hard, especially in an industry where a lot of us are a type personalities. So we all come in with our own set of ideals and ideas. But we have to be open to collaborate and understand that we are not the expert in everything. So it's really just making sure that collaboration, I mean, that's the cornerstone of my business is collaboration and the partners that have come together. It wasn't for my partners that we have been able to work with. Event specialists wouldn't exist today.
1: Absolutely. All right, so going on to, we were just talking about this before we started recording, you guys are heading over to London for Event Tech Live. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing there.
0: I'm super excited. Event Tech Live, for me, used to be like this far off thing that was existing, as a proud event technologist will say. I used to think, oh, well, there's nothing that exists for us. There's no show that really showcases event technology. There's nothing that really allows us to step into our shine where technology enhances what we do. And then came Adam Perry and the introduction from Dahlia Algazar to that world and to meet Adam. And that's how we ended up involved with Event Tech Live. So event tech live is the only show dedicated to event technology purchasing and understanding and ideation and showcasing. So for us, we partnered to with Event Tech Live, that's Event Specialist and Event Tech Live, to create, as well as Dahlia Plus, we'll say, to create a North American hub, which was really designed to allow us to showcase our expertise internationally. The Event Tech Live show was built for London, and I feel like in the UK market and everyone knew it there, but our North American market didn't quite know it as much. So we've come together to be able to share. COVID, if I'm fully honest, again, selfish, allowed us to see a whole other world that was out there. It allowed us to expand our talent pool, our opportunities, our partnership opportunities, understand what different organizations are doing, so Event Tech Live for us, and I will say from an event specialist standpoint, we like to be an ambassador of the show for all it stands for. It teaches our industry, it provides knowledge to our industry, but it also allows us to build partnerships and different opportunities that didn't exist before. So it allows us to have conversations, and of course, it allows us to do business. At the end of the day, the show is meant to drive revenue. It allows us to increase our brand awareness. I feel like anyone who stands behind Event Tech Live, it just shows our stake in the Event Tech industry and our interest in the industry. And then it also allows us to collaborate together.
1: That's great. And so can you show me tell me a little bit more about, again, we spoke earlier about it. How are Canadian companies or North American companies and businesses participating with you in that initiative?
0: Absolutely. So... For Event Tech Live, anyone is welcome to exhibit. I feel like the misconception is always, do we do business in that local market? But truth be told, Event Tech Live and what I've learned from previous years is that there are a lot of organizations who are based in the UK who still do business in North America who need a North American partner. They need someone who can support the design and delivery this side of the pond. So the North American Partnership Hub was built off of the premise that we could support each other in growth. So because we all know, I mean, truth be told, it is what it is. It costs a lot of money for our North Americans to go to the UK. So for the North American Hub, what we've created is an opportunity for business owners based in businesses based in North America to teleport to London. So our team at Event Specialists, we become the representative for the companies in London so that there's an on the ground presence. So there's still a trade show booth and there's still all of those things. We man the booth for the hub and represent everyone. We do demos, explanations, and then help book appointments for the North American team so that they can follow up later and follow up with their own leads. But it allows them to have a presence and a footprint without actually having to be boots on the ground and it still gives you access to the platform and then they're still able to do virtual appointments remotely and then stay tied to the event it also gives them a little bit more stage time and things like that so we can pitch our businesses
1: that sounds like a great initiative and especially for there are a lot of solopreneurs and small boutique kind of agencies that can definitely benefit from that so we're just going to wrap up with a few quick questions i always like to give at the end of this episodes because our audience is mostly event professionals, event marketing professionals. What practical steps would you give them to start implementing that idea of zone of genius, that collaborative effort, and really sort of elevating their position and getting to the table as we were discussing before?
0: I'll have to say, start with what you do well. I feel like that's been a principle that I've often applied to even design. It's one of the core principles of event specialists. We start with what you do well and go from there. But if I'm honest, the biggest driver for me is to have conversations with others who are doing what you want to do. I know it's scary to reach out to others and say, hey, I see that you've moved up or I see you are now C-suite at this big organization or I see that you're now running your own company. But having the conversations to understand how others are doing what you want to do makes it a little bit easier. I mean, I'm very blessed to have amazing mentors in the industry who haven't been afraid to share things with me. One of the best pieces of advice that I was actually given years ago before, well, I had my company, but I was still working with other event agencies. April Taylor told me, it is important to be a strong number two before you can be a strong number one. And she said, go all in and support the growth of someone else or another organization or something, be a strong number two, a strong advocate as two, and then step into one.
1: That's amazing advice. <laughs> Best advice you could get. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting that you say that the whole don't be afraid to talk, right? And that's why I really love the idea of the Eventpreneur Club. And we're seeing an emergence of a lot of those type of communities across the board, which are driven by members and driven by collaboration. Because I think there was a perception five years ago that it, I think the pie metaphor is what we used to use. like everybody's afraid of slicing up the pie too much and then nobody's gonna get enough pie. And then they start saying like, oh no, let's just build a bigger pie. And so I find that interesting that that attitude is shifted And certainly we're a practitioner, I'm a, personally a practitioner of that. But five years ago, I would have been a little nervous to reach out to a competitor and say, house business to be able to collaborate and just sort of lament and get it off our chest and say, oh, you know, let's learn from each other because, you know, we're all going to grow. And I think there has been that groundswell, a change in the industry where people are allowing themselves to be vulnerable and transparent and learn a little bit more. So thank you for emphasizing. We Canadians
0: are friendly. <laughs> we sure are. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so just to wrap up, where can people find you if they're interested in reaching out to you?
0: Absolutely. On all social networks, MahoganyJonesEventsSpecialist.ca is the website, most active on LinkedIn, easiest spot to find me. So I will say that.
1: Great. Well, thank you for joining me today, Mahogany. It was great speaking to you.
0: Thank you so much. Production Value Matters, the business event podcast is brought to you by
1: Byrne Production Services. To find out more about Burn Production Services and how putting on events can drive value for your business, visit burnproductionservices.com. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Production Value Matters, thank you so much
0: for listening.